And I want to invite you to take a, a Bible and open up with me to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 13. Uh, you'll find this on page 819 in the Blue Pew Bible. Again, Matthew chapter 13. And so it is, it is the kingdom of God that we're talking about again this morning. And, and, and what a wonderful topic to open up and to look into on this day as we celebrate the, the coming of this king uh, into this world. Uh, he came into the world as a king, and he came to reign as a king. And you know, if you want a really simple definition of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we use those terms as the Bible does interchangeably. Uh, if you want a definition that's really simple, because it can become confusing, because there are different views out there and understandings of the, the kingdom of God, and, and we have all these different perspectives on it, but a very simple definition is just that. It, it is that the kingdom of God is the reign of God in this world. Uh, or you might say the kingdom of God is the reign of God through in and through His people in this world, which is the same thing. But what does that mean, practically speaking? What does the kingdom of God really mean? You know, uh, a little earlier when we had our call to worship and, and read the words out of Psalm 45, we, we read these words that, that they, in the speaking of those who uh, believe in Christ, uh, believe in God, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. So one of the things that we are to do is we are to proclaim the kingdom of God in this world. But in order to do that, we need to know about the kingdom of God. We need to know what it is, what, what characterizes the kingdom of God, what it's like. And so that's what we're looking at this morning uh, out of Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Jesus knew that there were certain aspects of His kingdom that His people would need to know in order to do this, in order to, to be those who proclaim His kingdom to the world and to, to faithfully serve Him uh, in that way. And so we're looking at one particular aspect of that kingdom this morning as we open up to uh, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, and I'll just uh, let you know or remind you if you've been continuing with this series through Matthew's gospel that Matthew chapter 13 is, is Jesus uh, teaching, but teaching through parables. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at another one of those parables. In fact, we're looking at two. They're very closely related. They're very short. We've only got three verses uh, to look at. Uh, but this is Jesus teaching to the people, to a large crowd of people, but especially to his disciples, his 12, about the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm going to be reading Matthew 13, beginning in verse 31. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed 
that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words uh, this morning. Thank you that this teaching is there, that it's given to us, and it's given that we might see and understand your coming into this world, uh, your creating a kingdom in this world and reigning as king. And I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and to understand and to take this and to apply it to our own hearts uh, that we might truly understand as we live our lives out of it. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think the very best stories that are out there are those, uh, whether, whether it's in the movies, the highest grossing movie or the best-selling book or, or the longest uh, uh, running show on Broadway, invariably, if you look at the stories that are behind each of those, what you find is this tremendous turn of events that takes place. There, there's always uh, something that's unexpected, often seemingly impossible, that, that happens, a twist of the plot. And it often comes uh, in the form of a great contrast. You can think of uh, a Cinderella type of story, uh, rags from rags to riches. Uh, that's what really grabs our attention. That's what draws us in. Uh, and it's in that sense that this story that we're looking at this morning uh, that we find just in the first couple of chapters in, in Matthew's Gospel, we find it also in the first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel, it is a story that is unlike any other. The contrast that is there, if really taken and really understood, uh, being a true story, is greater than that of any other. So, of course, I'm talking about the birth story that's often repeated at this time of the year. Now, it, leading up to that story, the expectations that were set by the Old Testament prophets were substantial because Israel, who had been uh, trodden under the feet of her enemies for so long, uh, was told that she would have a great king, would have a deliverer, one who would come and would rescue and who was powerful enough to crush her enemies. Uh, and that king would come with great majesty, would come in the, in the majesty of the Lord his God. And he would be great to the ends of the earth. We find that in Micah chapter 5. And his name, we read that earlier together out of Isaiah chapter 9. His name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, think of those words. Think of, think of the expectation of what was to come. Uh, it was all with great uh, 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 terms of, of royalty and, and superlatives uh, that were used, magnificent, wonderful, glorious, marvelous. 
What was the reality when he came? It was a baby born amongst animals. Now, I know if you drive around, I know in our, our neighborhood, probably in, in yours as well, you'll see, and maybe you've got this in your yard, a, a nativity scene, and it's very serene, and it looks very peaceful. But that couldn't have been really the picture that we're given. It must have been unsightly. There was a woman who had to, had to give birth. She was forced to give birth in a place where there were animals roaming about. Uh, and the baby was placed in a feeding trough. You know, we use that word manger. It was really a feeding trough for animals. It must have been dirty. And you think about the circumstances of this birth. Uh, the woman gave birth in, in a, a, it seemed outwardly, outside of, of marriage, outside of wedlock. Uh, and in that day, the penalty for that could have been stoning. And so you think about the circumstances uh, where this was taking place. There was no real evidence of royalty, at least outwardly, uh, the baby's dad was a carpenter. The baby's mother was, seemed to be an unknown young woman. And they were from Nazareth, which we find out later was clearly a, a town of uh, no good repute. And so you've got this great chasm between the expectations that were set all the way through the Old Testament, especially with the prophets, and then the reality that we find uh, in this uh, account. You know, there's, a, there's an account in uh, John's gospel that shows just this. And this was after Jesus had uh, lived much of his life here upon the earth. His ministry had begun. He had miraculously fed 5,000 people. This is uh, John chapter 6. And he fed them by five loaves and two fishes. A great miracle by any account. And the large crowd of Jews that were there were adamant because this man who had come, he surely fulfilled the expectations that were set for him. He had all the qualifications until finally he was here. Uh, he could be the great political and the great military ruler that they were looking for who could finally, finally face down Rome and take them out from under the oppression that they had been under for so long. And so they literally tried to force him to be their king. And he had to escape uh, in order to keep it from happening. And this just points to how, how strange and how, how, how different this is. There, there's a twist of the plot here. Uh, because he, he's got all these great expectations and he fits the qualifications and even his 12 disciples who were with him, they testified on different occasions that he truly was the Messiah. He was the true fulfillment of all of the expectations that were there. And yet, he remained hidden. And the kingdom remained local and small and insignificant. So much so that even after he had had great crowds uh, during the time of his ministry, by the time that uh, he finally wound up in Jerusalem, he went to the cross. Almost all the crowds were completely dispersed. And when he was crucified, 
He had that sign that was put over his head, that was put over his head in jest, that said, King of the Jews. So that's what this parable that we're looking at this morning is about. It's about a kingdom. A kingdom that is great and a kingdom that is glorious. A kingdom that is everything that the Old Testament prophets prophesied and proclaimed. And yet when people saw it, and often when people experienced it, it was so different from their expectations. You know, Jesus came into this world as a baby in a manger. And He died a convicted criminal's death in a place and and surrounded by a people who seemed to have little significance to the rest of the world. And that just speaks of the nature of this kingdom at that time and today. And so, so Jesus told this parable in order to help His disciples, His disciples in that day and His disciples today, us as well, not to become discouraged. And not to become disheartened. What he's really doing here is he's setting expectations because he wants us to see and he wants us to know what this kingdom is really all about, what it's really like. You know, if you give yourself over to something, you want that something to be something great and to be something grand. I think that's why all the the winningest football teams... They always have a a huge following, no matter who they are. The reason is that we can become discouraged when we feel small, when we feel like we're of little account, when we feel like we're not accomplishing a lot, we're not conquering, we're not winning. And that's very true for followers of Christ. Do you remember what John the Baptist said at one point? Now, John came into the world to proclaim Christ, right? to show the way of Christ, to prepare the way before Him. But there, there was this point, and it was after He had already made it clear that Jesus is the long-awaited One, the One before whom all must bow, every single person, the One before whom all would stand judged. And then what happened? John found himself in jail with no hope of being released, a very dim future before Him. And he also heard that Jesus wasn't preaching in the way that he expected. And Jesus wasn't conquering in the way that he had proclaimed. And so John said these words. He said, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You know that in those words, there's a lot of discouragement there. There's a lot of confusion there. And this was from a man who was with Jesus, was the forerunner, for Jesus. You know, maybe that's something that you have felt uh, yourself when you've had, for yourself, you've had great expectations for Jesus and for His church. And then maybe you found yourself uh, surrounded by friends or family and, and you've spoken about Jesus outwardly and you received a response that wasn't at all what you would have liked or what you might have expected. Or maybe it's when you've been maybe in the workplace or somewhere else where people have found out about your views on a particular topic or a particular issue. Your views that have come from this kingdom, this worldview. And the response to you is, really? 
You believe that? And it can make you feel about this small. Maybe you've become discouraged when you look at the world around you and you don't see all that many true followers of Christ. You know, Jesus told this parable for the purpose of encouraging and informing us because the kingdom of God, which is the reign of God in this world, is to be that which is a refuge and a rest and a comfort to His people. That's what it should be. We just need to know what to expect. We need to understand it. And that's what Jesus is bringing here. Now, I'm going to break it down into to just two parts. Uh, first, Him saying through this parable, be comforted in spite of the kingdom's seeming insignificance. And then secondly, be comforted because of the kingdom's unparalleled greatness. So first, be comforted in spite of the kingdom's seeming insignificance. Here's the thing. The kingdom of God cannot be clearly discerned or seen with your eyes. Now, I'm not saying you can't see the effects of it. But I'm saying that you can't just look and see, unlike the kingdoms of this world, you can't look and see the kingdom itself. Therefore, it might seem to be small, it might seem to be insignificant, and yet, yet, when Christ is present, and His church is faithfully looking to Him, following Him, doing His work, we must not become discouraged when things seem uh, to be so small and, and we seem of little consequence because we must see this kingdom from a right perspective. Now, Jesus says here in this parable, He says, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field." And Jesus said this to a people who th their livelihoods were often based upon agriculture, upon growing things. They, they knew... Uh, what it meant to grow things. They would have known what a mustard plant was. And many of them, even those who weren't farmers amongst them, probably would have known what a mustard seed was like. It's what Jesus calls here the smallest of seeds. And so they would have known that. And they also would have known what the, the mustard plant becomes once it has taken root, once it has grown to its full, uh, that it was often maybe six feet tall, it could be that tall, or eight or even twelve feet tall. And then it grew to be large and full with the branches spreading out. And that's why Jesus here calls it a, a tree, even though it really was a bush. But it's this contrast, the contrast between the tiny seed and the great tree that it becomes that is at the heart of this parable. It's the smallest of seeds, he says, planted in the ground. And yet it grows to be larger than all the garden plants. Now the fact that the seed was small didn't at all point to it being insignificant. It had to be small in order for it to then take root and to grow this large plant. But the fact is that at one point, that seed was very, very small. 
And that's what Jesus wants us to see here. He wants us to see this as a characteristic of the kingdom of God here upon the earth. Now, why? Why, does, why is the kingdom like that? Uh, why is the kingdom of God so different in that way from the kingdoms of this world? That if we're honest, you, know, you look at the kingdoms of this world and they are outwardly uh, the, the whole goal is for them to have great glory. Uh, you know, we can look at, at China just a few months ago. Uh, remember when there was a provocation and China wanted to prove who she was. And so she surrounded the island of Taiwan so that they, no one could approach from the outside and from the inside they couldn't get out. It was a show of power. Uh, other nations want to do that. Of course, you know, North Korea, that's what they're about. Let's not uh, uh, step back and, and fail to see the U.S. We do the same thing. I used to be on an aircraft carrier, and that's what we did. It was called force, prote- uh, force uh, uh, projection. And so we would project to the world as we went to different places how great we were, the great military uh, that we have. That's, that's what the kingdoms of this world do. So what is it about this kingdom that's so different. Well, here's the main thing. The kingdom of God manifests itself on the inside. All the great powers of this world, they're, they're outwardly impressive. But this king came into this world with a completely different concern. What does he do? He comes to each person as an individual. And he speaks to you directly. He speaks to you about yourself and personally. And you know, if it, if, it is a true, if it is the true kingdom that's coming through, it's not going to be just a large church that impresses people. It's not going to be a, a great and beautiful choir, beautiful music, wonderful performers. All of those things may attract people, but they're going to do nothing to truly open the eyes of that person to see the kingdom of God and to see Christ. The kingdom is not going to come to a person because they submit themselves uh, to a a great and impressive uh, organization or institution, kind of like the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, It's not going to be even because of very charismatic and influential speakers. But Christ comes to an individual and He speaks to them directly and internally and places upon their hearts a call to look to Him, often in a way that's hidden from the outside world. And He speaks to them in the midst of their circumstances. And it's a work that may take a long time, or it may be a very short time in duration. But what does it do? It always convicts them about themselves, and about their need, about their sinfulness before a holy God, and about their inability to save themselves. He brings a message that's very different from the rest of the world that says, stand up. uh, Take control of yourself and of your circumstances. Lift yourself up. But instead, He comes with a message that you can't save yourself. But there is one who can. Now the point here is that like the seed of the mustard plant, This transformation is happening underneath and inside in an invisible way. It's a hidden work that takes place. 
But if the seed grows, it's going to have to grow by the power of God. It's not the farmer who is actually bringing growth to that seed. You know, Paul said to the, this young church in Corinth, as he was speaking to them about when he had first come to them, when he had first shared with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And here's what he said. He said, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Notice that in these words there's an absence of anything that's done by man. In fact, the opposite is true. He said, I came to you in weakness. It wasn't me. But the Lord took that word and the seed that was planted and He, he, he fed it and He matured it. He worked upon it. And it was by the hidden power of God. That's the power that conquers the heart. That's the power that convicts the mind. That's the power that brings us to a, a voluntary submission before Christ so that we're not only able to say, but willing to say, desiring to say, my heart and my mind and all of me, that Christ is above all. And this should be a source of encouragement for us. Why? Because we become discouraged when we begin to think like the world. And we begin to think that we need to be outwardly impressive. That we need to perform and, and it needs to be a, a big production. We begin to, to think that, you know what? We lack this and we lack that. And so how are we ever going to attract or, or, or bring in? You know, I've heard uh, people before and there have been times in my own life when I have said this, uh, speaking of some particular church, and I've said, you know, it's really got it all. It's got these wonderful programs and brilliant teachers and uh, an awe-inspiring choir, a charismatic preacher. And notice, I, I'm not diminishing any of that. Scripture doesn't speak against any of that. God can use any of that. But none of those will in and of themselves bring us any nearer to the kingdom of God. It is not an outward kingdom. It's a hidden work that God is doing on the inside. It's all by the power of God. You know, in, in the, the book of Zechariah, Zechariah the, the prophet says, do not despise the day of small things. We find Jesus saying, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Uh, it, it, it is something that happens inwardly. It's something that happens by the Lord. This is... This is something that Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 17 after He was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. They were looking for something in particular. And here's what He answered. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not outward. It's not grandiose. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Behold the kingdom of God. It is in the midst of you. It is inside of you. The kingdom of God comes and it works in a hidden way. But not only that, not only is the kingdom hidden, 
but it's also universal. It's influence, wherever it is active, its influence, its transforming power is not just limited to a, a certain type of people or to a certain group of people, but it's going to have impact throughout. And that's what the parable in verse 33, this very short parable, is all about. Now he's saying the same thing in this parable that he just said in the parable of the mustard seed, but he, he adds to it. Listen, verse 33 he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Now, he's exaggerating there uh, for a purpose. Three measures of flour. That's about 60 pounds of flour. That's enough to make a lot of bread. Uh, a woman took and hid leaven in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. You know, leaven. It works a lot like yeast, or even probably more properly like sourdough, if you're used to that. It's a, it's a starter, but it's small, and, and it was used to, to work its way throughout the dough and to impact or to affect the entirety of the dough, and so, so that at the other end, when you cook the bread, you'd wind up with these beautiful loaves of bread that had risen. Why? Because the leaven had worked its way throughout. Now, often in the Bible, leaven is used in a negative way to represent sin. But here, it's being used in a very positive way. This is the kingdom working its way uh, throughout. The point here is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is pervasive. Wherever it's truly active, it will have an impact upon others. And in that way, it's also indiscriminate. It will draw people in regardless of who they are, regardless of economics or race or education or background. It comes to all. Now, it's, you'll forgive me, I hope, if I use this illustration, but it's a bit like the, the viruses that many of us got hit by about three or four weeks ago. Remember, there were a lot of people who were getting sick. And you remember how that happened? You'd have people within a family, and, and, and a number of people would come down with it, but others wouldn't. And we're here within the church, we were together with one another. Some people would get hit, but others wouldn't. It was indiscriminate. There was nothing we could look at on the outside and say, you're going to get sick, but you're not. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, but that's the way the kingdom of heaven comes. It is universal, and it is indiscriminate. Uh, it's the Lord who's working. And He's working often in an imperceptible way. And He's reaching the hearts of men and the hearts of women. And He's conquering them for Himself. Now that should take the pressure off of us in a very real sense. And we shouldn't become discouraged when we're together with others and we're sharing the good news of Christ and we say, this is what you need. You'd be the perfect person to hear this message and to take it in. And yet, it's not up to us to determine who, to choose who. That's the work that God does. Uh, you know, and, and if we continue forward, and if we're faithful, we can know that God will do His work in building His kingdom. It won't be made up of those whom we expect or those whom we might choose. But if we're faithful again, we might just one day look around and say, wow, 
Look what God has done. Look what God is doing. So don't be discouraged at how small the seed appears, but instead be comforted in spite of the kingdom's seeming insignificance at times. Secondly, be comforted because of the kingdom's unparalleled greatness. You know, there, there is something here in this passage that, that we must be convicted of at all times regarding the kingdom of God. You know, in the parable that we read earlier out of Ezekiel 17, the parable about this, uh, this sprig that was taken off of the, the, the tree. Remember the emphasis there that was given? It was the height of the tree, the, the cedar was the tallest tree among all the trees, and the top part that was taken off was that, that sprig. Uh, and then from that was taken, just the very tippy top, the branch was taken. It was the part that was taken down and it was planted in the ground. But you know in that process, it didn't lose any of its true greatness. It didn't diminish at all in its true majesty. But it just wasn't so apparent because it was planted in the ground. It was no longer visible. Well, that's the point that's being made here with the seed. When the farmer plants the seed in the ground, we're to know that that seed contains within it uh, all of the greatness that will eventually manifest itself in the, the larger bush that, or tree that is so impressive. Uh, the, the seed itself doesn't diminish at all in its value when it's planted in the ground. You know, you can think about the same thing with, with a, a child when a couple brings a, a young infant into this world. Uh, you know, they don't look at that child and, uh, and say, well, we're, we're going to hold off. We're, we're not going to treat that child so well because one day maybe she will become one who is, is, is a woman and is in her fullness but right now, no, we're going to treat her poorly. We're going to treat her with disdain. No, her parents are going to look at her with joy because she is one and the same as the woman that she will one day become. You know, the Lord calls for us to see the kingdom of God as that which, although it may appear small uh, to the eyes of this world, it truly reflects and possesses the greatness of, of her king. It is a kingdom that is great to the ends of the earth, a kingdom that will have no end. You know, we read earlier out of Psalm 45 again, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. You know, think about Jesus' disciples. For Jesus' disciples, as they were ministering, there had to have been times, and we see that, when his kingdom undoubtedly seemed to be so, so minor, so trivial, when it was compared with other great kingdoms, such as uh, the, the, the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire. And yet someone like the disciples, especially later, uh, after they had the Holy Spirit at work in their hearts in this new way that we see uh, that came about at Pentecost, or, or like the Apostle Paul, uh, they would have taken great comfort and knowledge 
that that kingdom, that great seeming kingdom of that day, Rome, was temporary. And it only had power because God had granted that power to that kingdom. And therefore, Paul, remember Paul was able to appeal to, to Caesar completely without fear. We go to the, the, the end of the book of Acts and, and, and Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Well, how was he able to do that without any fear, true fear of Caesar himself? It's because his refuge and his hope was not in Caesar. It was in his submission to the Lord God. You know, in, in writing to the, the Roman church, this is in Romans chapter 14, uh, Paul at one point says this, he says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then, Paul says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. What do you think is the source of Paul's confidence? How was it that Paul was able to stand before the Lord God, before a holy God, in that way, with such confidence? It was this. It was because he didn't stand on his own basis. It was because he looked to another. He looked to this king. This king who had for him, for Paul and for the other disciples and, and for all the followers of Christ who has once and for all paid their way so that they are able to, to look upon God, to be together with God, to stand with God because they have that righteousness of Christ which is placed upon them. That's the nature of this kingdom. That it is great. And so, what did Paul do? He found refuge in this king and in this kingdom. Uh, not in Caesar. And so it was on that basis that he was able to stand and to face any other kingdom in the world, including Rome, because he belonged to the kingdom that supersedes all other kingdoms. And so a question, was Paul right in that? Well, where do you find the kingdom of Rome today? It's in the history books. It's in the same place that you'll find every other kingdom of this world. But you'll never find this kingdom, the kingdom of God there. You know, what a, what a comfort it will be when you know internally for certain more and more this kingdom, when you live your life out of a knowledge of it, when you rest upon the greatness of this kingdom, and you say that no matter what else I face, I am on solid ground because of where the Lord has placed me, because I am a part of this kingdom. What comes about? It brings about comfort. It brings about peace. It brings about an absence of fear. Uh, do you remember earlier when we read from Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is a kingdom that will last forever. This is a kingdom that we can find solid ground and a kingdom in which we can find rest and we can find refuge. 
Let me read earlier, and I'll, I'll, I'll close with this, but our assurance of pardon that we read. Remember, it was out of Luke chapter 1, also out of Colossians. And, and as I read these words, think about the kingdom that, it's, that, that, that is being spoken of here. And the angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then taking that and applying it to ourselves, what does that mean to us? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the King of all kings and He is the Lord of lords. And His kingdom is the place where we will find solid comfort and refuge. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You that we are not left to that which is temporary, that we are not left to depend upon the things of this world, including the kingdoms of this world, but that into this world Christ came. And He came bringing a kingdom that is solid, a kingdom that is final, a kingdom where we can find solace and comfort. Father, would You help us to depend upon that kingdom uh, we do, like Zechariah, we often uh, allow doubt to enter into our hearts. We often fail to see in a right way the kingdom of God and, uh, and of Christ, His King. And we fail to see that which is ours uh, by rights. I pray that you would help us, strengthen us, open our eyes to be able to see and to depend day after day as we love our lives. We thank you that you are our God, and we thank you for the comfort that you give us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.